Anyway, while we were on our way to dinner last Saturday, we drove through downtown Columbus. And I don't know if you've been down there in the last couple of weeks, but, but I, I'm, just, I'm just telling you, as we, as we drove through downtown, I was, I was, I was really dumbfounded. I mean, I've seen some things on television and, I, and I've watched on the internet, but I, I, I was, I, it was unbelievable to see firsthand the destruction that has been caused by the riots over the last few weeks. The vandalism was evident everywhere. The defacing of property with paint, the number of boarded up windows because rocks had been thrown in, and then you think about the fires and all the looting that's taken place. And there are countless numbers of people who think all of that activity is absolutely justified, that the illegal activities are absolutely justified. Our world has completely flipped its lid. And it's amazing to me. I mean, amazing is people are standing back and just watching it happen. We, we live in a day of anger, hostility, rage, hatred. And I know I'm not telling you anything that you don't already know, but it is getting worse fast. Have you noticed that? It just seems like it's exploding. There is an underlying angst that's been boiling up for some time in our country, and we're watching the volcanic eruption of it all. And honestly, and I want you to hear this, honestly, it's not solving anything. In fact, all of this is only making matters worse. You slapping me somehow feels like I now have the right to slap you back. And if that's our justified response, then I'm just telling you, we, we are in for a very long season of unrest. Don't, now, don't, don't, don't get me confused here. Anger and hostility is, is nothing new. The history of our world is full of stories, full of seasons that, that speak about how people have been mistreated and misused. Every race, every people group, everybody has at one time or another, at one season or another, gone through some horrific, difficult, abusive, traumatic times. Hey, listen, I am a German Jew. I, I get it, all right? I get it. And the Jews are not alone. Was the mistreatment of those 12 and a half million Africans who were stolen from their country four, three, 200 years ago, was, was that 12 and a half million theft of people was, was the, was, and brought them to different countries, not just this country, in fact, the the vast minority of them came here. They went kind of, they were taken all over and sold. I mean, is there anybody, do you know anybody that says that that was a good thing or a right thing? Because I don't know anybody who would say that. And the Jews and the blacks are not alone in suffering in this world. Some 5,000 Ugandans were tortured and killed by Idi Amin. Under Mao in China, the the question is exactly how many, but it's someplace between 45 and 75 million Chinese people were killed by Mao. One and a half million Cambodians were murdered by Pol Pot. 
Three million Vietnamese, Cambodians, and Laotians were killed by Ho Chi Minh. Now, I don't know if you're counting, but someplace between 70 and 80, 90 million people have been killed in our world, and that's just in the last 80 years. And the, and the truth is the history of the world is filled with that kind of activity. But don't misunderstand me. I am not saying that any of this abuse and death is okay. I'm not justifying it. Any of these tyrants, in fact, all of these tyrants are someday going to stand before God and they are going to give an account of what they did and the people they harmed to the God who created it all. But here's my question. If you're a person who has been harmed or your ancestors were harmed, does that harm give you the right to harm back? Or worse, does being mistreated give you the right to lash out on anybody that you so choose, anybody that gets in your way? And I, I would say that the answer to that is no. In fact, I, I, I would tell you quite frankly and quite boldly that the Bible has much to say about how we should respond when, when trouble comes into our lives. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, 44, I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Just a few verses earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, in verse 39, Jesus said, I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other one also. You got this side, how about this one too? In Romans chapter 12, verse 19, Paul writes, do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. When you start treating people with love and kindness in response, they just don't know what to do. It just kind of freaks them out. It's like, ah. Jesus said when he was on the cross, Luke 23, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Jesus and the first century church lived under one of the most tyrannical governments of all time, and that would have been Rome. In the Roman Empire, people died every day for sport. Christians were brought into the Colosseum. Other people were brought into the Colosseum where they were routinely killed by gladiators and lions. And it was seen as entertainment. People paid money to enter into the Colosseum to watch all of this stuff go down. The Apostle Paul was most likely beheaded for his faith in Rome. And nowhere do you read in the pages of the New Testament these, these guys promoting death to the Caesars, riots against the nations, petitions to, to get rid of the Roman army. Instead, here's what you read. Peter writes in 1 Peter 2, submit yourself, submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men, whether to the king as the supreme authority or to governors, live as free men, verse 16, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as servants of God. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the brotherhood of believers. Fear God. Honor the king. To a bunch of people who were being killed and maligned, these are the words of encouragement. Now, friends, it just leads to some apropos words from the Apostle Paul right here. Right here in the middle of the book of Ephesians. 
Words that apply to our world today. Words that we should read carefully. And I'm encouraging you not only to read them careful, carefully, but to make sure that you are applying them to your personal lives. Because when it comes to racism, as, as Christians, we need a complete and total paradigm shift. We need a dramatic shift in the way that we see the world. There are four things I want to put in front of you. Let me encourage you to write them down. And the first one is this, the clear teaching of the Bible. The clear teaching of the Bible is that all of humanity falls into two distinct categories. When God looks at the world, he sees two categories. What are those categories? Well, first is death, and the second one is life. People are either dead or they are alive. The, the, the words, death and alive, deal with the spiritual condition of a person's soul. You are either spiritually dead or you are spiritually alive. Now, here's the truth. You are headed to an eternal destination. Some people are going to go to hell where they will be spiritually dead for all of eternity, and some people are going to heaven where they will be spiritually alive for all of eternity. The day is coming when we are going to stand before God, before Jesus. The books are going to be open. Matthew 25, 31 through 46 describes this. The books are going to be open, and God is going to separate the sheep from the goats. The people going to hell, the people that are going to heaven, the people that are dead, the people that are alive. It will be a sobering moment for the vast majority of humanity. Because if the Bible is true, and it is, it tells us that the, that the amount of people going to hell are literally like a broad highway, and the people that are going to heaven fulfill a narrow path. So the, the words are that there are a lot more people on the path to destruction than there are on the, the path to life. And on that day, it's going to be sobering because there's a whole lot of people that are going to be gasped as they, gasping as they finally understand exactly what's going to happen. And I don't think all the sheep on the other side of, 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 of God's hand are going to be reacting much differently than that because in that group are going to be all kinds of people that you know and all kinds of people that you love and all kinds of people that you care about. And you're going to see them separated over here. The last thing they will do is bow down, Philippians 2 says, and give honor and praise to God. They will glorify his name. Because Jesus is Lord, and then they will be cast to outer darkness. So here's my question. Is hell what God wants for some people? Did God decide who is who? Did God decide who would be dead and who would be alive? Did God make the distinction here about the categories are, are there some people that God just absolutely loves and wants to be with him and a bunch of people that God really just doesn't have any time for and he really just wishes they would get lost and so we go to hell? But here's the big question. Is God a racist? Now, by definition, racism, a racist is someone who is prejudiced against, antagonistic towards, looks down on and or discriminates against someone of a particular race. A racist would say, I love these people, these kinds of people, my heart. These, eh, not so much. Racism goes further by believing that certain groups or, or races of people are incapable of doing specific things. They're inferior, limited, incompetent. Most people are ignorant, stupid, less than other people, subhuman. 
maybe even animals. And racism hits rock bottom when hate and violence are directed at those people that they consider to be inferior. They deserve whatever I, the superior person, choose to give to them. So since the Bible teaches that there, there, are, there are two classes of people and there's a whole class of people that are going to be separated from God, the question is, is God a racist? And the answer to that is no. In fact, it's absolutely not. Romans chapter 2, verse 11 says, God does not show favoritism. When God looks at the world, he doesn't see Jew or Greek. He doesn't see male or female. He doesn't see slave or free. What God sees are people, souls. God didn't put anybody in the lost or the dead category. Anybody who's sentenced to hell put themselves there. When I chose to tell God that I wanted to live by my own standard, by my own priorities, by my own law, by my own rules, well, I put myself in the death category. You were a free will being, and God gave you the choice. He gave you the freedom to choose where you would be. And the Bible's clear. We all made the decision to be dead. We are all dead. Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin, the thing that we earn by our choice to follow our own path is death. So it raises another big question. What about the people who have never heard about God? What about the people who have never heard about God's law? You want a staggering statistic? Try this. And it's hard to believe because we live in a country where freedom of religion abounds and, and freedom to, to possess written material about God, like the Bible, abounds. I mean, in, 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 in my own personal library, I have 20, 25 different, different, in, different versions of the Bible that I, that I own personally. But what, what I want you to know, while it's so easily accessible here, there are three billion people, three billion with a B, three billion people in the world today who have never heard about Jesus. They don't have a Bible. They don't have access to understand God's written law. They have, they have nobody to share with them about who Jesus is or what Jesus did for them. You, you can read uh, more about this at the joshuaproject.net. I put that website, joshuaproject.net, in your, in your outlines. I want you to circle that and, and, and do a little bit of research here. It's, it's amazing. Over 40% of the world's 7.75 billion people, or more, than, or, more, or more than 3 billion of them, are dead simply because they have no Bible. So here's the question. If you don't have the written law, of God, how, how can you be held accountable? If you were never told what's right and wrong, how can you be in the wrong? I mean, how fair is that? Well, here's the deal. God's not unfair. God's not unjust. When God judges, it's always true, always right, always fair. God will not judge you Based on what you do not know, he will judge you based on what you do know. And the Bible's clear that every person on the planet has enough information to choose life. You say, how is that true? 
let me put two thoughts in front of you. First of all, the Bible tells us that the proof of God is written in the creation. Paul, writing in, in Romans chapter 1, he says, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against the godliness and wickedness, godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. How did he make it plain? Well, Paul goes on, verse 20, since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. What Paul is saying is when you look at the creation, when you look at the heavens, it should be enough for you to say, wow, there is a God. The fact of creation is enough to hold you accountable to this truth. There is a God. Now, there are all kinds of people today that want to tell you, oh, you can't know. Yes, you can. Open your eyes. Look at your hand and try to explain where that came from. You know where it came from? It came from a God who created it to be so. Come on, church, say amen to that. Yes, it's true. There is proof of a God by creation. And, and then Paul goes further in Romans. He says the proof of God is in creation and the law of God is written on our hearts. A chapter later, Paul says in chapter 2, verse 14, indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law, they did not, they did not get the Holy Scriptures, they did not have the Hebrew Old Testament. When, they do, when the Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, and even though they do not have the law. Verse 15 goes on, since they show that the requirements of the law are written on their heart, their conscience is also bearing witness, and their thoughts now even defending them. So what, what is Paul saying? Here's, here it is. Everybody has a rudimentary level of God and his law. It's written in the creation. It's written on our hearts. That's what these verses in Romans tell us. And Paul's conclusion, we are without excuse. By refusing to acknowledge those, simple, those two simple truths, we put ourselves in the dead category. I'm just telling you, this law of God in our hearts and the creation, the, the, this was the big philosophical ideal that C.S. Lewis came to. C.S. Lewis was, was a professor of literature in, in England, Oxford. He was at Cambridge at, at some point, too. He was an atheist. And he reasoned himself to be a theist by this simple truth, the moral code. He saw that every place in the world, there was a right and wrong. And not only was there a right and wrong in the world, everywhere, there was, there was the same right and wrong. Everywhere he went, it didn't matter how advanced or, or how backwards the culture may have been, everywhere he went, it was wrong to lie, it was wrong to cheat, it was wrong to steal, it was wrong to rape, it was wrong to murder. Everywhere he went. And his question was, where did that come from? And the answer was, the law of God is written in my heart. And because of that, it brought Paul to this conclusion. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sin. And here's the amazing thing. Not only did God not put anybody into this category of being dead, God provided a way to enable mankind to move back from death to life. And that, 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 that pathway was Jesus. Jesus came and died for us. He died in our place. He's the sacrifice of atonement. He paid for your sins. And because of Jesus's work, his death turned the wrath of God away from you and turned it towards him. He suffered your penalty. And now by accepting his death, his penalty 
paid your penalty paid on his behalf by on his behalf for on your behalf he paid it i'll get there eventually right because of that you can be free you chose life and now you death and now you have the opportunity to move and choose life god's heart god's heart is that everyone would accept that gift of grace and be saved second peter chapter 3 verse 9 the lord's not slow in keeping his promise and peter here is talking about the second coming how come he hasn't come how come he hasn't come Peter says, the Lord's not slow in keeping his promise of return. As some understand slowness, he is being patient with you because he doesn't want anyone to perish. He wants all to come to repentance. If, if he were to come back right now, I mean, like, like right now, which by me would be okay, but if he came back right now, there would be a whole lot of people that would be lost. And Jesus has put off his second coming. God has put it off for the purpose of giving people an opportunity. But here's the deal, friends. God will not his choice on you, his will on you. He gave you free will because he wants you to decide which camp you want to be in. So here's the deal. Did God, is God a racist? No. Did God create a system of racism? No. There, there are two categories of humanity as far as God's concerned, those that are dead and those that are alive. But God wants everybody in this category. He didn't choose to put anybody anywhere. What he wants is everybody to be over here, which brings us to the second half of the book of Ephesians. And, and, and I want you to hear a couple of more thoughts. And it begins with the Jews and how they completely missed the point. And what they did was they took these two categories of death and life and they adjusted them. They redefined these categories so they could redefine God's heart. For the Jews, the categories morphed. According to the Jews, the categories look like this. Jews are loved, and everybody else hated. And in those days, if you were not a Jew, you were a Gentile. So you got the relatively small people group of Jews and everybody else lumped together, Gentiles. So my question is, how did the Jews get here? How did they take God's categories of death and life and change them to love and hate? Well, they simply went to the Old Testament and they pointed to their mantle of being chosen. And Adam and Eve sinned. And the truth is, we all followed suit because we've all sinned, the Bible tells us. But when they sinned, they moved themselves into the dead category. And it was right at that instant, in Genesis chapter 3, that God pronounced his, his, his intention. One was coming. This one, the seed of woman was coming. And what he would do is he would stamp, he would crush, he would stomp the head of the serpent. You know the story, that, 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 that somebody was Jesus. He was the Messiah. He was the promised one in Genesis 3.15, the one who would crush. And to enable the Savior to be able to come, God unleashed his plan. And the plan was simply to bring this Messiah to the world. And to enable that to happen, he called a man. The man's name was Abraham. And from Abraham, he was going to build a nation of people called the Jews. And the Jews would then usher in this one, the Messiah. And right in Genesis chapter 12, when Abraham was being called, God is laying this out. 
God says to, to Abraham, I, I simply just want you to leave your country. If you leave your country, leave your people and your father's household and go to the land I will show you. If you will move, if you will move to the place I want you to go, then here's what I'm going to do with you and through you, Abraham. I'm going to make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. You will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. Whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples of the earth will be blessed. All the peoples of the earth will be blessed. Does this say, and all the Jews of the earth will be blessed? No. This promise of blessing was to the world, to all people. The Messiah would be a blessing for all people. He came for all people. He, the purpose of the Messiah was to help all people move from, from being dead to being alive. The purpose of the Jewish nation was to bring this one, this Messiah. The problem was that the Jews twisted their purpose. They morphed themselves from being the people who would usher in the Messiah to being the people that God loves. In their minds, God loved Jews and hated everybody else. So here's the question. Were the Jews special? And the answer is yes, absolutely. In fact, Paul deals with that in the book of Romans, chapter 3, verse 1-2, because while Paul is proclaiming that everybody's dead, everybody's sinful, and therefore everybody's dead, the Jews are going, whoa, 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 they're protesting. What about us? Aren't we special? And Paul just answers the question, yeah. What, is, what advantage then is there to being a Jew? Or what value is there in circumcision? And Paul says, much in every way. First of all, they have been entrusted with the very words of God. What Paul's going to go on to explain here is that the Jews had front row seats to the hand, to the purpose, to the will, to the working of God. If anybody should have got it, it should have been the Jews. But it wasn't how the Jews interpreted all of this. They, they, they spent hundreds of years renaming and adjusting the categories of humanity. They, they moved it from a salvation issue to a racist issue. You hear me? And having adjusted the categories... The Jews then justified their hate. We think that hatred, when it came to Jews, was a one-way street. And down through the ages, there's been plenty of hate directed at the Jews. Let's go back to the book of Exodus, the, the opening chapters. The, the Jews have been in bondage and slavery. 100 years, maybe 200 years. They, they, they were over run. They were overwhelmed. 80 years ago, we had the Holocaust. Six million Jews killed. Life in the Middle East today, the nation of Israel is surrounded by, a group, by groups of people that want to do nothing more than wipe them from the planet. Hate has flown at Israel, but the, the truth, friends, is that hate has flown out of Israel as well. The hate is not only towards Jews, it's also Jewish. The, the, the Jews have looked down their pious noses at everybody else and played the card of racism. And in the Apostles' day, that hate was in full bloom. Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 12, therefore, remember, the you who are Gentiles, and he, right here, He's writing to a bunch of Gentiles that are in the church at Ephesus. 
says that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, that done in the body by the hands of men. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope, without God in the world. Who are the Gentiles? They, they were every person who was not a Jew. In other words, most of the people of the world. And the Ephesian church was full of Gentiles. When Paul would move into a city, he, his first step would be to go to the synagogue. And there he would teach and preach. And he would do that until they would th- the, the Jewish population would throw him out. And in Ephesus, when he went to Ephesus, he taught in the synagogue, reasoned in the synagogue, preached in the synagogue, and, and it lasted for three months until the Jews had had enough and they threw him out. And when they threw him out, then at that point, he was now moving to the hall of to the lecture hall of Tyrannus in Ephesus, where he spent two years. And Acts chapter 19 tells us that that every person in the region of Ephesus had heard the gospel message by then. And a bunch of those people were being converted, and a church was founded. It was the Ephesian church. And a huge number of those Gentiles populated. In fact, the number of Gentiles in the church was probably more by far than the Jewish population of the church. Now, amazingly, the Jewish Christians looked down their noses at these second-class, second-rate people called the Gentiles who really didn't deserve to be Christ, and they called them a bunch of names. First of all, in verse 11, they said that you're uncircumcised. It was a true statement that the Jews were the ones that were marked by the cutting of the male foreskin. That, that, that's absolutely true. But the way that the, the term was being used right here, it was a derogatory statement. It'd be like saying kike or slant eyes or redskin, cracker. It was a derogatory name meant to put down, belittle, be mean. Verse 12 says that they declared them to be separate from Christ. And as you read this separate from Christ, read not wanted. Read not invited to the party. Verse 12 goes on to say they were excluded from citizenship in Israel. The word excluded could be translated aliens or alienated. In fact, for our our terminology, think illegal aliens. They were living in the land, but but they were not wanted. Go home. Go back to where you came from. Get out of here. You're separate. You're not wanted. You're not invited to the party. Get out. Go home. Verse 12 goes on to say they were foreigners to the covenants of promise. As American citizens, we're afforded with all kinds of rights. And as as citizens, we can declare those rights. We can take things to court. But if you're not a citizen here, none of the rights apply to you. And that, that's what's happening here. These, the, the Jews declare the Gentiles, you have no rights. No rights in Christ. No rights with God. They're, you're illegal aliens who are not wanted and not worthy of any rights. Get out of here. Go home. And because of that, they said in verse 12 that they were without hope. Without hope. God was a zillion miles away from anybody called Gentile. And there was zero, I mean zero, chance that they would ever be near God in this world or in the next. None of the promises apply to you. You can't have them. So they were without hope, and that verse 12 ends by saying without God. Now here's the reality. 
The statements were true. The Gentiles were in this condition before they came to Christ. But when they became Christians, they were adopted into the family of God. The Gentiles were not any less people of Christ than the Jews. They were equals in the family of God. God's definition of Israel was really not the physical nation of Israel. God's definition of Israel was the spiritual nation of Israel, which was every tongue, every tribe, every people. And honestly, every negative thing that could be said about the Gentiles could have been said about the Jews, even in their Jewish state of bringing in the Messiah. They were chosen to usher in the Messiah, and then they had a choice. They were already dead, just like the Gentiles. The question is, will you accept the Messiah? Will you accept the gift? Will you come to Christ? And I'm just telling you, friends, that all of this separation and all of this death, none of it was God's intention. When God looks at people, he only sees two things. Dead. Alive. Don't you find it interesting that most of the religions of the world wind up promoting just the opposite? That we are some kind of special class of people that has the blessing of God upon us because we're special? And everybody else just Go to where you deserve to go, which is to hell. And I'm just telling you, friends, it completely and totally misses the heart of God. God doesn't level hate at one classification of person. No, he, he brings mercy. He brings grace. He brings love. That's, that's what God is bringing to the table. And when people refuse his love and his grace and his mercy, well, it grieves him. God doesn't find any joy in sending anybody to hell. And that leads to the next point here. For any social divide, God is the solution to the problem. Last week, Paul waxed eloquent about how dead people were resurrected and brought back to life. You just need to go back and reread that section, Ephesians chapter chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. And make sure you allow yourself to be overwhelmed by the mercy and the grace and the love of God. Because I deserve death. It's what I chose. It's where I deserve to be. It's where I deserve to be for all of eternity. But God, who is rich in mercy, poured out his grace upon me. Jesus died in my place. And it was all directed by love because God was committed to give to me the best and fulfill my need. And Paul continues right here in the section of scripture. Ephesians chapter chapter 2, verse 13 says, but but, and I'm just telling you, whenever you read this little three-letter word in the Bible, but, make sure you slow down because it usually means that something good is going to be said. Paul's been telling about all the bad, all the bad, all the bad, and then he says, but, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near through the blood of Jesus Christ. The Gentiles were all the things that the Jews had said about them. And truth be known, the Jews were in the exact same condition. They were dead, far from God, aliens, excluded, hopeless, lifeless. And then God intervened, and God brought life to everybody who would have it. Listen, friends, we need to get over the racist thing. And quite frankly, I am sick and tired of hearing it. Am I alone here? I'm I'm tired of hearing black and white, and brown. I'm tired of hearing Asian. 
I'm tired of hearing this stuff. And the reason I'm tired of hearing it is because none of that matters to God. God intervened. If you want to know the truth, here's the truth. The enemy is constantly stirring up trouble to keep people's focus on the wrong issues. The work of the enemy is to divide. The work of the enemy is to ratchet up hate. The work of the enemy is to do damage. Read Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 through 21. The work of the flesh, among, among which is sexual immorality and idolatry and witchcraft and sandwich, right in the middle of all of that is hatred, dissension, discord, and factions. Jesus said in John 10, 10, the thief, the enemy, he comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Jesus said, I came that you might have life. You were dead. I came to bring you life. What the enemy wants to do is steal, kill, and destroy. He wants to get into all of this. If it, Brenda is always saying if it has steal, kill, and destroy on it, it is not of God. The enemy is about steal, kill, and destroy. And here's what I would say to all of that. As far as I can see, the enemy's having his way. Friends, Satan wants the world in hell. If he can get us focused on hating each other, if he can get us focused on mistreating each other, if he can get us all ratcheted up on all the wrong issues, then what he's done is taking the true focus of our lives away from us. And once that happens, we're not focusing any of our attention on what we need to be focusing on, and that is to bring as many people to Jesus Christ so that they can move from death to life is absolutely possible. And that's the heart of God. Mercy. Grace. Love. Friends, God does not see color. Christianity is not about skin color. Christianity is not about ethnic background. Christianity is simply about death and life. And it comes, when it comes to people, God is colorblind. Are there going to be black people in hell? Yeah. And are there going to be white people in hell? Yeah. Are there going to be Asians in hell? Yeah. Death is an equal opportunity employer. And God wants to move people from death to life. God isn't into spewing hate. God's into providing answers. And here's what Paul writes in Ephesians. For he himself is our peace. He has made the two one. Gentiles, Jews, one. He's destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. By abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations, its purpose was to create in himself one new man, out of the two, thus making peace. 
and in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached. He preached peace to you who were far away, Gentiles, and to those who were near, the Jews. But even though the Jews might have been near because they had the commandments and the truth of God and the Gentiles may have been far, the truth is they were both dead. And so Jesus came and preached peace. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit because he is our peace. Would you say that with me? He is our peace. Would you say it again? He is our peace. Everything else is just a tramped up squabble that's being stirred up by the enemy. And friends, it leads to the last thought I want to put in, you, in front of you, and that's, that's our focus. Our focus needs to be our new status in Christ. We were dead. We were dead by our own choosing, and Jesus came and died for all people. And now I have a choice, and now I can be made alive. And the focus needs to be our, our new status in Christ. Because of all that Jesus has done, a miracle has been accomplished. Look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19. Consequently, you who are called foreigners and separated and aliens, you are no longer foreigners and aliens. You're fellow citizens with God's people. You're members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises up to become a holy temple to the Lord. And, and hear this, friends. This is speaking to the unwanted class of people called the Gentiles who were in the church in Ephesus, but really it's speaking to all of us. Because here's the question, how many Jews are there here today? Not very many. So are the rest of you excluded? No. The rest of you are wanted and bought in with the price, and God's calling you to choose. The heart of God is that this place would represent our community, that there would be people of every tongue and every tribe, that God would be building us up to be a temple of glory to him. God wants all of us. God wants you. He wants you saved. He wants to move you from death to life, and he wants to do that to your neighbor work associates in this community and beyond. Some friends, it's time for us to open our eyes. The enemy wants you to believe this is about race, and that he wants you to believe that there's hate out there that's deserved and justified, and I have the right to go scream and yell because I got hurt or I got trampled on or something happened to me, and, and God wants me to proclaim my right to scream and yell and rant and rave and call you a name. And God wants to give you... The enemy wants to give you the same right to do the same thing right back at me. And what God wants to do is erase it. All of that is just a big picture to take your mind off the truth. You were once lost, and now you're found. Years ago in my youth ministry days, we were on a mission trip. I had taken a whole bunch of kids from my California youth ministry down to Mexico. We were building houses. It's hard to believe, but 150 miles from where we lived in Anaheim and literally just a few miles across the border from San Diego, 
some of the most affluent communities on the planet, there was abject poverty in and around Tijuana. People lived in cardboard shacks. You could find a piece of metal to put over your little eight by eight squatter hotel. You were blessed. Piece of plastic or tarp to go over the top, great. Four sticks in the ground, a little tarp, maybe a piece of metal over the roof, dirt everywhere, no, no running water, no toilets, just holes in the ground. That's all there was. All kinds of barriers, language barriers, food barriers, health barriers, all kinds of stuff. And here we were, I have 100 kids from my youth group down there, and we're building homes for some of these people. We got up one morning and we were pouring the cement slab that was going to be this house for this one family. And when I say house, don't think the Taj Mahal here. This is like an eight by 16. It's going to be two rooms. But it's going to have a roof and it's going to have some windows and it's going to have a door. It's going to provide some safety from the elements. While we're down there, this mom was grabbing up her little one-year-old boy and she was bringing him and she had a bucket a bucket, and it was, I mean, the bucket was filthy dirty because everything was filthy dirty. And this mother had poured water into this thing and she had taken some dish soap and she had dumped it in and she had stirred it all up so there were bubbles. And she was grabbing her little one-year-old boy and she was plopping this dirty, filthy little boy into this tub of bubbles. And the kid was screaming his head off because he didn't want to go into the water and he didn't want to take a bath. And the mother's there trying to play with him and trying, and he keeps trying to get out and get out and get out. Finally, she grabbed a little plastic toy and she dumped it into this, into this bucket. And this kid just grabbed the toy and started squealing with the light. And there he was screaming and yelling and knocking water every place else. And as I'm watching this little Hispanic boy, this little one-year-old, I'm thinking that 150 miles away, I have twin boys that are one years old that are going through the exact same thing. It's maybe a little bit nicer bathroom, but, but, but the same thing. My filthy little dirty boys don't want to get in the tub. They want to be filthy, right? And Brenda's put some water in a tub and she's put some soap in there and she's got it up and pretty soon a toy goes in there and they're squealing with delight as they're playing just like this little kid. And I'm thinking, every mother wants the same thing. She wants her kid clean. She wants her kid nourished. What's the difference between this kid and my kid? And the answer is not much. 150 miles. What nation we happen to be born into. Is that person any less than I am? Is that person, is that kid any less than my kids because of where they were born? The answer is no. God loves all people. We need to, we need to shift our focus, friends. It's not about closer to God and farther away from God because we're special. It's about death and life. And he is our peace. He's broken down the dividing wall of hostility so that he might make us all into a glorious temple of God. Would you bow your heads? And friends, here's the question. What are you doing about it? 
What are you going to do about it? Are you helping or are you hindering the cause of Christ? Is the kingdom of God being served by your attitude or is it being hindered by your attitude? Do you feel justified to spew hate? Or do you understand that you were truly dead until Jesus entered into your life and brought you life? When we begin to see ourselves for who we truly are, we have the opportunity to help others, but not until. So, Lord, open up our hearts. Open up our minds. Father, help us to see that these days we're living in are all stirred up by an enemy to bring death. And we really have a great opportunity to do something about it. Let's be your ambassadors to bring life. So Lord, help us to see it for what it really is and help us to be motivated and moved to enable you to have your way through us. To be bridges to Jesus. And that's our prayer. We lift it up in the name of Jesus. And God's people said...